Well, if you have your Bibles, you can uh, open them to Luke chapter 24. Last week we were in Nehemiah chapter 4 uh, at the end of the chapter, and we looked at Nehemiah in his time of crisis when his enemies were coming in on him, and we compared that to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we looked at how uh, it kind of seemed opposite of what we might expect. We saw Nehemiah as very confident, uh, and we saw Nehemiah having the support of his followers. Uh, they were so supportive of Nehemiah, in fact, that they took their showers to the, to the shower, or they took their, yeah, of course they took their shower to the shower with them. I'm already making mistakes. This is going to be a long sermon. They took their swords to the shower with them. And uh, that's just how dedicated they were. And then we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he doesn't appear confident at all. He's uh, actually terrified. He's horrified. He's astonished at about what is going on. And his followers cannot even stay awake with him. And we said this difference was actually really good news for us because we saw theologically what that means is Jesus was forsaken so that Nehemiah, years prior to Jesus, and Blake Farley, years after Jesus, could stand with confidence. Because if I am in Christ, that means I will not be forsaken by God because one has already been forsaken for me. Jesus was undergoing the wrath that I was to undergo. He was forsaken by God so that I might be chosen by God. And that's very good news. And we also said it was good news that Jesus' followers were kind of losers. Because if Jesus' followers were like Nehemiah's followers, if they were really dedicated and they did everything right, we might begin to wonder if Jesus could ever love people like us. Because when I look at Nehemiah's followers, I don't see myself. But when I look at Jesus' followers, who cannot even stay awake to pray with him, who say their spirit is willing but their flesh is weak, I say, those are my people. That's me. And Jesus loved them. And that can tell me, you know what? Jesus loves me as well. Now, last week I told you, this is all theological stuff. It's stuff that hopefully you leave and you worship and you say, awesome, praise Jesus. But but I said, I'm not really going to address when it feels like that's not true. Because here's what I know about your life, if it's anything like my life. I can theologically know that to be true and sometimes still feel forsaken, still feel abandoned by God. I can still feel like God is not with me, like the darkness is winning, like the enemies are surrounding me. And I'm like, God, where where are you? I don't have any confidence that you're going to show up. And all the people who I think were supposed to support me are sleeping. And so this week, what I want to do is go to Luke chapter 24. And I, I want to look at just a couple ideas. I'm not really preaching Luke 24 for the main point of the text. I'm just preaching out off of some things that I think are are biblically true, uh, about ways in which we can feel the presence of God. How does it actually feel like we're not abandoned by God? And uh, first, I want to tell you why you feel that way. And then we're going to look at uh, two ways that you can kind of give yourself encouragement in the time of darkness. Uh, And I will say this also, before I jump in, I'm going to read Luke 24 and pray, and then we'll jump in. But there are just times in your Christian life where you feel that way. And it's important for you to remember this. Look at me. Your feelings are not the truth. We live in a culture that often tells you that your feelings are the truth. And you've got to be very careful to not buy into that narrative. You know, we live in a culture where you, whatever you feel is what is true. You know, and I've said this before, but it's so true. Just because you feel it doesn't mean that it is true. Uh, you, know, you can call yourself a biscuit and put your head in the oven. You're not a biscuit, you know. And yet we live in a society that says, oh, you're a biscuit. Okay, well, here's some butter, you know. And we've got to be careful that just because we feel like God has abandoned us, we don't forget the truth that he has not abandoned us, that he is with us. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 24. And by the way, I believe the main point of this text is uh, is that Jesus is the center of all scripture. That as we look through the scriptures, we ought to see Jesus in all things because everything points to him. 
But it's very interesting and kind of funny, ironic story here in uh, verses 13 through 35. I'm just going to read through 32, uh, where these guys are walking with Jesus and they don't even realize it's Jesus. It's, it's really, it's kind of comical. Uh, so we'll jump in at verse 13. This is after the resurrection. Jesus has died. He's rose again. Some of the disciples have went to the tomb and Jesus isn't there. And uh, now here we pick up these two guys walking along. Verse 13, it says, Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these past days? Are you living under a rock? Have you not heard about the Jesus guy who died and now some people are saying he rose again? And Jesus is like, no, tell me more. Verse 19, what things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, It's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he has interpreted them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Man, I'd love to hear Jesus preach a sermon on all the scriptures, wouldn't you? That'd be much better than what I'm going to say today. Verse 28. They came near to the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And and they still don't recognize him at this point. Now, verse 30, it says, It was as he, Jesus, reclined at the table with them, and that he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Father God, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that I stand up here not on my own authority, but on the authority of the truth that I believe is found in your scriptures. God, I am a a flawed interpreter of these scriptures, though. I'm I'm a sinful man who often doesn't see the things that I'm supposed to see. But God, I pray that with your supernatural help, I would be able to speak truth to these people. God, the things that I say that are true, I pray they'd be highlighted in their minds. They would encourage them, especially those who maybe are in a time of darkness or in a time in which they feel abandoned by you. God, I pray more than anything that even if it's not my words, if it's just the reading of the scripture, God, that you would give them some sort of peace and encouragement today. I I pray that those things that I say that are true are highlighted in their minds and in their hearts. And those things that I say that are untrue, God, I pray that they would just blow away like the chaff in the wind, forgotten before they even leave this sanctuary. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your name that I preach. Amen. So as we jump into the text, I think it's very interesting, verse 16. It says, but they were prevented from recognizing him. And here's what you need to know, that sometimes in your Christian life, what will happen 
is that it'll feel like Jesus isn't with you. It'll feel like God has forsaken you, and that's actually on purpose. There are times in which God is with us, but it feels like He's abandoned us. He's allowed us to go into what some theologians would call the dark night of the soul, because out of that dark night, out of that desert, there's actually a growth that is going to happen. What you need to understand about this life is it is not supposed to be all rainbows and butterflies. This life is to conform us into an image that will help us for the next age, for the age of eternity. You know, it's, it's like if you didn't know there was a basketball game and you went to basketball practice and the coach was making you run suicides. It would be a pointless endeavor. You would say, this guy just loves to torture me. But when you know that there is a game coming, you can understand that the coach is putting you through this to condition you for what is next. He, he's doing something to prepare you for what is to come. Well, this is what God does in our life. There are times in which he pulls away from us, although he's not really pulling away from us, but it feels like he's pulling away from us because he's trying to grow something within us. And I want to be very clear. I do not believe God ever forsakes you because of any sin in your life. Anybody who says that, you know, I've sinned and so now God has abandoned or forsaken me is somebody who does not understand the message I preached last week. Because the gospel is very, very clear that we are not counted righteous on our own behalf. We are not brought into the covenant community on our own behalf, but based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this Christian life is a heavy yoke to wear around your neck if you believe that your actions will take God away from you. A lot of people believe in what I would call the swivel chair God. You know, those chairs that spin back and forth like God is looking at us and he's pleased with us. We do something wrong and God swivels around and turns his back on us. And he kind of looks over his shoulder. Okay, are they doing the right things? Have they went to church three weeks in a row? Did they give a little bit more than their tithe? Okay, well, I'll turn back around and love them again. That's how a lot of us view God. And I think that's a very sad way to view your heavenly father. Well, what a fearful life to live. No, we are not forsaken. We are chosen because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. But that does not mean we will not sometimes feel forsaken because of what God is trying to do in our lives. He's trying to teach us something. This is no different than what good parents do. Uh, in, in psychology, they talk about the overprotective mother. Uh, my wife got her counseling degree, so I get all these kind of different psychological theories, and, uh, you know, which are fine sometimes and not so fine other times. But uh, th- there's the theory of the overprotective mother, which we probably have seen play out. Uh, in the lives of people you know. And and that is the mother who loves her child. It doesn't just have to be a mother, but it's normally that nurturing spirit. Uh, A mother who loves their child so much and they want to protect them from everything. But by protecting them from everything, guess what they're doing? They're keeping their child from maturing. They're keeping their child from actually growing up into the person that will have a life which they can live independently. They're not loving their child. They're hating their child by overprotecting them. And boy, parents, I get this. You know, now that I have my own child, I look at Blakely, I just want to freeze time. She's so innocent and perfect right now. Nobody has ever broken her heart. She's never even scabbed her knee. It's just like, man, I want to bubble wrap you and keep you in this house forever because the world is scary. But if I do that, I'm not a good dad. Right? I know that the day will come in which I have to walk her to preschool and she'll be scared and I have to let her go in without dad. I have to let her feel like dad is abandoning me. I'm not abandoning her, am I? No, I'm, I'm letting her grow. I know that the day is going to come in which Blakely's feelings get hurt by somebody. And I'm going to want to go and rip their little six-year-old head off. (laughs) But that would destroy my ministry and not be a good look. I'm going to have to let her learn how to deal with those emotions. I'm going to have to sit with her and rub her back and tell her it's going to be okay. And let her feel the experience of going back to school the next day to the very same bullies and face them. Why? Because I want her to grow up into the kind of person who can handle that because the world is a mean place. You know, if you think preschool is bad, it only gets worse the older you get. You've got to learn how to do it. One day when she's 16, I'm going to have to toss her car keys and let her drive off. I'm going to check the air pressure probably 73 times. And I'll pretend like everything's fine and then she drives off and I'll be nervous the whole time. 
Because I remember the first time I drove alone. I about killed myself 73 times. Yet I have to let her do that. I have to let her grow up. And one day, she's going to come home with some boy who says he loves her. And I'm going to have to walk her down an aisle. And uh, he's going to think he loves her as much as I do. And I'm no, I know that's not true. But he's going to have to believe that or I'm not going to let him marry her. And I'm going to have to say, she's no longer my responsibility, but now she's your responsibility. Because I'm a bad dad if I don't do that. I have not succeeded if my daughter still lives with me when she's 37 years old. <laughs> that is what we would call a failure. I have to let her grow. That doesn't mean our relationship ends. No, if anything, it's new and it's strengthened. Each stage can be a time in which we're excited because we get to relate with our children in a new way as they become mature and independent adults. I enjoy the stage we're in at now with Blakely, but one day I I can't wait till she's an adult and I get to see her and I get to have grandkids and I I get to have a legacy because of what she's doing and I get to relate to her as her own individual person. Man, that, that will be the sign in which I know I made it as a parent. And in the same way, when God lets you go through some of these dark valleys and it feels like he's not there, this is an inward journey that if you come through it on the other side, you will be stronger. You will be more conformed to the image of Christ. This is why throughout the Bible, it tells us to rejoice in our suffering. Why would we rejoice in our suffering? It's not that we're glad for the suffering. You know, I'm not somebody who's looking forward to suffering happening. And there's suffering I look back in my life on and I wish it wouldn't have happened. But I rejoice in what God is doing in it. Because what the world and what Satan has meant for evil, God will turn and use it for good. He will conform me into his image. He will teach me. Now, you might ask, what could God possibly teach us from our suffering? And uh, there's plenty of things. I could, I could read hundreds of texts, literally from the scriptures. But there's three main things that I've seen in my own life of which God has taught me in these times of suffering. These times in which I feel that I've been maybe abandoned by God. Number one is that God often uses my suffering to humble me. See, what happens often in my own life is I begin to think I'm doing really good in life and I begin to think that I don't really need God's help. And so what God will do sometimes is He will show me just how much I need His help. Uh, We see this in the the Gospels uh, when Peter walks on water. It's one of the most famous stories. Uh, You probably know it. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and what happens to Peter? He, He sinks. Now, what I find really interesting is most scholars believe that Peter was the kind of the voice behind the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, when it talks about the, the themes in which uh, the time in which Peter was to walk on water, the Gospel of Mark omits it. It's not in there, which is very strange to me. Uh, and I can just imagine like John Mark looking at Peter and saying, Peter, are you sure you don't want to include that part about walking on the water? And Peter's like, no, I don't want to do that. Because if it was my story, you guys would know I walked on water. You know? I, I would omit the part where I sank. But I would definitely put the part where I walked on water. I'd probably start the Gospel that way. Hey, there was this time I walked on water. And, uh, and Peter completely omits it. And I think the whole point of that is Peter is saying it's not about me. I need to keep my focus on Jesus. Jesus is the one this whole story is about. It's Jesus's power that I need to be connected to. Uh, as a preacher, I get to experience this a lot because I'll have a string of sermons where I feel like, hey, I preached pretty good. You know, things went pretty well. People seem pretty engaged. It seemed like it helped people. And uh, what happens inevitably is I can put in 20 hours and I get up and I preach like four duds in a row. It's like I'm doing the best I can. I'm working hard all week. And, and some of you guys cannot think about anything except for what you're eating for lunch next. <laughs> you know? And I truly believe that God uses that often. He lets me walk up to this pulpit without that kind of help to show me how much I need him. How much of a knucklehead Blake Farley is without God. If God does not go with me, none of these sermons work. And on the reverse side, also equally discouraging is when I've had to preach sermons without any time to prepare. And I get up here and I preach and I go, that wasn't very good. And you guys all tell me you loved it and it was like life changing for you. And I'm like, okay, great. That's awesome. You know, it had nothing to do with my intellect. Why? Well, because God is humbling me. And God does this 
through our challenges. Uh, Number two is God will often let us go through these dark nights of the soul to teach us something about him. You know, you you would never long for God's presence unless you had already experienced it beforehand. And if you've never experienced God being on your side and truly felt what it is to have true union with God, then you wouldn't have missed it when he's not there. There's something about the removal of the union of God, or the feeling of it anyways, uh, that leads us to long for God all the more. And, And it's true, even with the people that we love, you learn more about them oftentimes when they're not there than you do when they are there. Now, my wife yesterday went to a wedding in Oklahoma City. Uh, it was an outdoor wedding, and so I stayed home because I do not want to freeze in November at an outdoor wedding. Uh, and my wife went with her friend, and uh, I missed her all day long. And it's, it's weird how you live with somebody and you kind of take things for granted. You know, when it came time for dinner, I was like, wait, I have to feed myself. So I called my grandma. <laughs> But it's so true that oftentimes when we're separated from somebody we love, we begin to kind of see things about them or remember things about them that we didn't know were true. There's something about the separation that brings more of them out to us. And not only that, but it changes the way we view other people. Uh, You know, C.S. Lewis has this uh, really interesting line where he talks about losing one of his friends. And, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, when I lost that friend, I thought I had just lost that friend. But that's not true because the next time he was with his group of friends, there was three of them. He noticed, he said, that friend who I lost brought out a side of this other friend that I never see anymore. So I've actually lost a little bit of this friend also by losing the friend that died. And isn't that so true? That the people in our lives bring out the best in other people, bring out things in other people that we get to experience in them. We are way more connected than what you guys even realize. And God, and having that union with God, that feeling of union with God brings out so much in life that we don't even realize until it's taken away from us. So oftentimes God will lead us into the desert to teach us something about himself. And the last reason uh, that God will often take us into these times is to reveal and to remove idols in our lives. And this is the hardest one to kind of grasp uh, or to accept. Uh, Idols are anything we find comfort in besides God. And oftentimes uh, we don't even realize we have an idol. We don't even realize we're taking comfort in something until it's gone. Uh, You know, you think, I'm not really a person who's led by money. Money doesn't really bother me. That's easy to say when you have money. (laughs) But what happens when you lose your job, when an unexpected medical bill or something comes up, and all of a sudden you're in a crunch for money? Well, you you learn something about yourself, don't you? You learn, wait a minute, I thought I was trusting in God, but really I was trusting in my 401k. Because wherever there is fear in your life, you can understand that the fear is based on, usually, an idol that you have your trust in besides God. And this is why we have different fears, you and I. Uh, It's always funny with Taylor and I because she gets worried about stuff. And I'm like, "Ah, why would you worry about that? You know, have faith, woman. Listen to your preacher, man of God. And uh, I don't ever say that. I wouldn't have said that if she was here. I get to be really bold in the pulpit. Uh, But then there's other times in which I'm having a whole bunch of fear and Taylor has no fear at all. But what is that? Well, it's Taylor has her idols and I have mine. You know, but I like my idols better. I don't think my idols are as big of a deal as your idols. And yet what God will often do is he'll lead us through these seasons to reveal these things. I feel like this has happened to me, you know, like a thousand times uh, throughout my ministry career, which means I'm obviously not learning the lesson somewhere along the way. But it's like oftentimes I feel like I've got it all figured out. And I'm like, I don't really care about my ministry. I don't care what people think about me. And then, you know, a Sunday will come up where we have like a low attendance or I preach a bad sermon and I go home and I pout. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why am I pouting? Obviously, it's because there's something about this that I find a lot of comfort in. I like you guys liking me. 
I like it when I stand up here and you look at me and you tell me how good I did and and how wonderful the sermon was. And I don't like it when you don't. And so God uses those times to say, Blake, you still got to work on this, buddy. (laughs) You, You have not arrived. And so I can also remove those idols because in the absence of them, I have to trust in God. So those are three reasons why God might allow us to go through these seasons. But I want to give you some encouragement now as we close and tell you the number one way in which I believe you can experience the presence of God. If you say, Blake, I'm not experiencing the presence of God. This is the number one way I would tell you to begin to experience the presence of God. And that is to be with the people of God. Now, you might say, Blake, uh, you know, you're self-serving by saying that because you're a pastor. And I would say, OK, we'll go find somewhere else to be with the people of God. And I don't just mean on Sunday mornings, although Sunday mornings are important because we're all together. But I mean your whole life being with the people of God. Because you cannot experience the presence of God fully unless you are with the people of God. And we live in a society that is very individualistic. It doesn't fully understand this. Even, you know, there is a high number of Christians. I don't know what the percentage is, but I'd probably be scared to find out. Who think that you can live a godly life, a Christian life, without being a part of a local church. There's a high number of people who think, you know what, I can experience God in other ways. I don't even need people. People are just kind of there as a side or maybe something to add to my faith every once in a while. And I just want to say to them, I don't know what faith you're talking about. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you have to come to church to to be able to be a a child of God or that you get any extra credit for being here. It's not like God's in heaven counting your attendance for church. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is if you read the New Testament, you find out that there's all sorts of commands for us to be a part of the local body of Christ. Why? Because we are a body. Just think about the metaphors, and it'll show you how ridiculous it is to think that you could be apart from the body of Christ and still have a good relationship with God. The body metaphor. Think about if I went home and I cut off my thumb. If I cut off my thumb, I would have a very short window before I had to get to the hospital, and they stitched it back on. Otherwise, my thumb would grow cold, and it would die. And the same thing happens when we're cut off from the body of Christ. We wither up, and we die spiritually. Or think about the the image of the family of God. You guys would think it was a big problem if I told you I did not live with my wife and my child. If I said, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, Taylor, yeah, she's a Farley, but I don't, I don't really live with her. I uh, see her every once in a while on holidays. You guys would say, Pastor, something's wrong with that picture. It, how could you be a Farley and not live in the Farley household? The same ought to be true for us. How could you call yourself a child of God and not be in the household of God? It, it's, it's bad for your spiritual health. In fact, there are ways in which you experience God that you cannot experience outside of the local body of Christ. Here's a, just a couple examples from Scripture. Uh, the first of which comes from 2 John 1.12. And it, it talks about our joy. John says, Though I have many things to write to you, I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. Look at this. So that our joy may be complete. But in other words, when we're not face to face, there's something about that that means my joy cannot be complete. It's why a live stream on a social media platform can never replace what church is. Because we have to be in the same place together. And the problem is a lot of people think church is singing that I get to enjoy and a preacher who preaches a message that helps my life. And that's not true at all. I mean, there's a piece to it. And yes, we sing songs, but we're singing together to the Lord. And yes, I stand up here and I preach and I hope that it's helpful. But as I've said many times, my sermons are not the best sermons. There are better sermons. And if you want a good sermon, stay home and watch your favorite televangelist. I mean, really, he's going to be more funny and probably better than I am. But the truth is, is you don't come for me. You ought not to. You come for one another. One of the things I love about our church family is that after I preach, you know, I always go in there and wipe the sweat off. Uh, they turn the fans on this week. Praise the Lord. And, uh, 
and I put my microphone up because if I don't, I'll walk out the building with it, uh, ADHD. And, and then I come back out here, and I think in a lot of churches, it would be pretty well cleared out. But you guys don't clear out. You guys stay in here and you talk to each other. You actually enjoy being with one another. And I love that about our church family. I love that we're going to go over to the family meal here in a little bit. And uh, our highest attended Sundays are the family meal Sundays. And you guys come over there and we have a ridiculous percentage usually that stay from the service for the family meal. Why? Because I think you guys enjoy being together. There's a certain joy that you experience when you're with your brothers and sisters in Christ that comes from God. Uh, second verse is from Matthew eighteen twenty. It says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't with us when we are alone. But it does mean that there is something unique about the way Jesus is with us when we are gathered together. We experience his presence in a unique kind of way when I am with you and you are with me. There's something about it that I can't fully explain, but I know that it's true because I've experienced it. I've experienced times in which I did not want to be with brothers in Christ, and yet I got up and I went to a meeting with brothers of Christ anyways, and I left that place feeling closer to God and more encouraged than I did before, than when before I got there. And the last verse is from uh, Ephesians chapter 5, which is uh, a truly amazing verse. Uh, if I were to ask you, how many of you want to be filled with the Spirit of God? How many of you want to be filled with the Spirit of God? You'd say, I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. How do I do it? Do I speak in tongues? You know, do I wave my flag and worship? What do I do to be filled with the Spirit of God? How do I get my spiritual tank filled up? And what Paul says is absolutely amazing. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. It says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Well, how do I do that? He says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. That there is something that happens when we sing songs to one another. Now, you might come to this service and think that the star of the show is whoever's on the stage singing, and you might think they're singing to you. And if you do, I'm sorry, I'm a bad pastor because that's not what's going on. These people up here have beautiful voices to help us all join in the singing together. And if you stand there with your lips sealed, you're not hurting my feelings, but you're hurting the feelings of the people around you. We need you to sing. You know why we need you to sing? Because there's something about it in which the Spirit is filled in me when you're singing songs. We're singing to God as a collective group, and we're singing to one another as a collective group. There's something spiritual that happens when we're singing songs. He said, I don't really like the music. That's not the point, you know? Like, we'll, we'll try to sing a song you like next week, okay? But the point is that we're singing praises about our God. We're reminding ourselves and each other of the promises that we have in God. And by the end of that singing, there ought to be something that happens within us that leads us to closer communion with God. Now, this is why the author of the Hebrews makes it very clear that we are not to neglect our gathering together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25 says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. 
It's very important that we do what we're doing right now. It's very important that we're going to go over there, we're going to eat a meal together, and then we're going to remember the Lord's Supper together. Remembering that His broken body and poured out blood is what brought us together in the first place. It's the reason why we we all come together. Some of us have more money than others of us. We're not all have the same education backgrounds. Uh, I think we're pretty much all white because of where we live. But in other places, you take communion with people where it's ethnically diverse. and, uh, and, And the reason that we're all brought together is why? It's because of what Christ Jesus has done. This thing that we're doing is not something that is just kind of a hobby to do on Sundays. If this is your hobby, it's a very poor hobby. You need to be out on the golf course. It'd be way more fun. No, this is something that is important for our faith with Christ. And here's what concerns me very much so as a pastor. A lot of times when people are going through their dark valley, when they feel forsaken or when they've maybe sinned in a a grievous way, what they often do is they run away from the community of God. In their time of need, the time in which they need the presence of God the most, they walk away from the people of God. And this is so sad. I've seen it so many times. I wish I could tell you the stories, but I can't because of the privacy of people. Of people who said that they were going to walk away from the community of God for a little while until they got better. Or until they felt better about themselves or, or until their life calmed down because they didn't feel right about being with the people of God. And it always makes me so sad because those are the people who need to be here the most. You need to be here. Nehemiah chapter 4, the text we looked at last week, it talks about how the people would blow a trumpet and everybody would rally to them to fight. Man, that is a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. You need to blow your trumpet when something is going on so that we can rally around you. Do not walk away from the people of God. No, blow your trumpet so that the people of God will come to you. And I promise you, in those moments, you will not feel forsaken. You will feel the presence of God through the people of God. Even if you can't mentally believe it or in your heart you can't fully believe it, I promise you, you'll feel the presence of God through the people of God. And here's the last bit of encouragement from Luke chapter 24. And uh, if the band, if you guys want to go ahead and, and come up to prepare to close us in service. Verse 32. It says, They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? And this is another truth about those of you who maybe feel forsaken right now or like you're in a dark valley. And it's something that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this to be true. And that is oftentimes we see God in our lives after the fact. But we look at those times in which we think God wasn't there at all or we don't understand what God is doing. And years later, we look back and we can begin to see God's goodness even in that situation. You know, I thought about my, my own life, and there's just so many stories that I could tell you of times in which I thought I was abandoned by God, and yet God used it to do something powerful. And I can look back and I can say, oh, I understand that now. You know, it, it took Taylor and I a year and a half of trying to have a child before she finally got pregnant. And a lot of that time, I began to wonder, are we going to be able to be parents? You know, and we prayed, and I thought, man, I think we'd be pretty good parents. Not the best parents, but I see some people who shouldn't have children, and they have 12. <laughs> You guys have seen them too. And so why can't we be? You know, what's going on here? And yet now, I wouldn't trade anything. Looking back now, I see it's the perfect timing. Everything worked out exactly the way it was supposed to be. And Blakely is the perfect child for us right now. Everything that I thought was God abandoning me was God preparing me. It was God being with me. He was in the details. Uh, you know, I thought about even a couple of years ago with my, my grandfather. He passed away unexpectedly. It was like the first day of his retirement and he died. And I thought, wow, that's so unfair. You know, why, God? Why would you do it then? But now, with a little bit of space, I can, I can begin to see, begin to see some of what God was doing. You know, they had just moved to Woodward. My grandma, my grandpa had moved to Woodward. He got rid of his shop and all of his uh, cattle. And they moved to Woodward. And then he dies pretty, recently, or pretty close to that. And I, I look back and I said, thank you, God, for that provision. 
Otherwise, my poor grandmother would have been left with a whole bunch of cattle to care for. You know, God was doing something in it. I got to preach his funeral. And as I preached his testimony of his life, a kid in the service gave his life to Christ Jesus. God had eternal implications with what he was doing through my grandpa. And, and I'll be true, I don't understand it fully. And I still wish it wouldn't have happened. And you probably got a lot of things in your life like that too. But here's what I do know. I know enough about what God has done and what God is doing that at the end of time, at the end of the age, when we're all worshiping Jesus together, all of it will make perfect sense. When we put our our lives up on the big screen and we see all that God was doing, all that He was orchestrating for us and through us and in the world, we're going to be amazed at what God is doing. And we're going to look back and we're going to say, He was there the whole time, wasn't He? Weren't our hearts burning within us? Friends, let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for this word. I pray that it is encouraging to those who are suffering. God, I pray that it would strengthen our hearts for those of us who right now are in a good period of life. Because God, what we know is that you will often lead us into deserts. Suffering will come our way. And we must be prepared before the suffering. God, I pray that we would all know that we ought not run from our brothers and sisters in Christ, but run to them in these times. To make sure we prioritize being with one another. Because experiencing your presence is uniquely tied to being with your people. Right now, friends, if you would, take about 20 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed, and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, I am so grateful that we are not forsaken because you were, uh, because the Son was, rather. I thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to die for us, that my sins were nailed to the cross, the penalty of my sins was paid for fully, so that I might have the righteousness that only he deserved. I thank you, God, that he rose again and that he ascended to his throne, and that everything is his, and every ruler and every authority is subjected under his feet. God, I thank you for the courage that gives me. And I thank you, God, that he is the head of the church, which is his body that I get to be a part of. I thank you for these people. God, we are not a perfect church because we're not perfect people. But Lord, what I do know is that your spirit is here. That there's something unique about this group of people who would not be brought together in any other way besides what you've done for us. And in that uniqueness, God, your spirit is with us. God, I pray that you would encourage the broken hearts today. And God, for those of us who are in a good place, I pray that you give us eyes to see those who are brokenhearted so that we might be able to run to them and show them your presence and help them feel your love through us. God, I pray these things in your name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and worship together.